It's been a few years since we've put in a vegetable garden, but we have six raised beds in our backyard. Doesn't sound like much, but it seems like when the harvest comes, it comes all at once. And if you're not careful, you find yourself too busy to actually do the harvesting. And some of the vegetables, the zucchini, the squash can, can go to waste, especially if you step out of town for a, a few days. The zucchini and the squash just come in groves to the point where you're like, I don't know if I can eat this much zucchini. Like one zucchini lasts quite a long time. And then you find yourself coming to church trying to pawn off zucchini. <laughs> and Jesus asks us to pray and he prays, Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That God would send laborers into his field. At this point in Luke's gospel, there's 70 that are going to be sent out. It's similar to the 12 that were sent out, but this is a different group. This is a a different group of disciples that are now being sent out. Whenever you see things several times in scripture, we've got to pause because this is familiar to the sending out of the 12, is God's heart is to send us out as well. As we follow Christ, as we learn and grow in Christ, that we would enter into his mission and share the love of Jesus Christ. So verse 1 of chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. The Lord appointed 70 others to go. It's not just the 12, now it's the 70. And God is continuing to send people out. He's, he's appointing people to go across the street, to share the love of Jesus Christ, at their kids' soccer team, to possibly cross the ocean, as Dan was talking about, to share the love of Jesus Christ. But it's Christ who's commissioning. It's Christ who's sending. It's Christ who's appointing. And he sends them out two by two. When we do the work of the Lord, we always want to do it in teams. God doesn't want us to be a silo. He doesn't want us to be alone. If we're alone, it can lend itself to pride. It can lend itself to isolation. So as you're serving the Lord, look for God to raise somebody up alongside of you. Husbands and wives, you've got a built-in team, don't you? Two's better than one. God's brought you together as husband and wife to to serve the Lord. Maybe you're dating or praying about getting married in the future. Is it someone that you can serve God with? Marriage is bigger than just our mutual satisfaction, but a team coming together to glorify the Lord, to enter into God's mission. These 70 were sent to the cities that Jesus is going to go to. So they're the forerunners. They're preparing the way for Christ to come. Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. A lot of the original hearers could relate to this in a deeper way. They probably had some fields or had been a part of a harvest, understood what it was like for the laborers uh, to be few. My grandpa Warren grew up in North Dakota, my mom's dad, and he stopped school in eighth grade because there was so much need for him at the farm. Like there was just so much work to be done. They needed laborers. So his education went through eighth grade. Wasn't fairly uncommon for his, his generation. And Jesus is saying in the spiritual reality that the harvest is plentiful. That there's many people, Jesus is talking about people that are ready 
to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's God's perspective. That's how Jesus sees things. But those that are willing to labor in the field are few. There's few that are willing to answer this call to say, I want to see people come to know Christ as their Savior. I want people to go from darkness to light and know the redemption and the love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus encourages us that he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the one that brings people out of darkness into light. And we're to pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up laborers, that he would send people into this field. Would you consider taking Jesus up on this prayer request? Sometimes friends, family members say, hey, would you pray about this? Well, well, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven is saying, would you pray about this? And do we believe that God hears this prayer? I think that most of us are broken over our community this week. The shooting that took place just less than a half, half a mile from RMC, North Carefree and Academy. Just nine hours before we had this service last week and just after our Saturday night service, five people's lives were, were taken. 17 were, were wounded. And we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. It's interesting in Matthew's account, Matthew's gospel, we're told why Jesus wants to send people into the harvest. I just want you to listen to this because I think it's the most important part of the message. Then, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. How did Jesus see the multitude? How does Jesus see Colorado Springs? How does Jesus view this, this shooting? He's moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion. Why? Because the multitude is weary. The multitude's wore out. And they're sheep that are scattered with no shepherd. Remember before you came to know Christ as your Savior, how weary you were. Sin is heavy, isn't it? Life is difficult in and of itself, but man, sin wears you out. That weight of sin on our shoulders and our community is weary from sin, weary from not knowing Christ as, as their Savior. Our community needs leadership, not the leadership that humans can provide, but only the leadership that Jesus can provide, the shepherd of our soul, to be under his care, to have him take us to green pastures and still waters. And, and this week to me has highlighted the spiritual need that's in our community. Last Sunday, as pastors, we took turns going to the memorial site of, of the shooting, set up a table and just handed out water and coffee and hand warmers, offering to pray with people. And it was amazing the opportunities that were there just to grieve pe with people, to love on people, to pray uh, with, with people. And the opportunity really is just right outside of these doors. And as we come in week after week, hopefully we're getting encouraged, hopefully we're getting equipped to be sent out to love people. But that's the heart of God. 
He wants people to come into relationship with him. And you see all of the confusion that has resulted since this shooting has, has taken place. I think it, it's worth mentioning that to teach and believe that the Bible has a message about sexuality doesn't lead to hate. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, a biological male, a biological female, and inside of that commitment is God's institution of marriage. It's not our institution, it's God's institution, but that doesn't mean that I hate. Do you, do you understand that? The focus on the family teaches a, a biblical definition of marriage, and this week their, their sign was graffitied that says, the blood is on your hands, five lives lost. Well, focus on the family didn't do the shooting, Right? And so there's all of this confusion that's taking place and, and we can easily get drawn into all of this and the scripture, the word of God gives us laser clarity and what is it? Sheep without a shepherd, people that are lost, people that need to know Christ as, as their savior and so we pray. But be careful when you pray Christ's prayer requests because he may send you into the harvest. You may be the answer to that prayer. And as you labor over lost souls and as you have compassion for people and we start to see people the way Jesus sees people, we start to go, man, there's more to this life than just surviving. There's more to this life than just making money. God, I want to labor in your field. Lord, I want to see lost be found. So these 70 are, are sent out. Go your way. Behold, I send you as lambs among wolves. That sounds fun. I'll be the lamb chop for the wolves, right? What is Christ saying here? That we're sent out innocent. We're sent out vulnerable. We're sent out as servants. We're not sent out in hostility. We're not sent out in violence. This is a, a spiritual battle. We come in the manner of Christ who suffered on the cross in grace. We're lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsacks, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. This is radical trust in God's provision. Don't take your wallet. Don't take a change of clothes, change of sandals. Stay focused. Don't get into side conversations on the road. Go from community to community. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Trusting that God is gonna open up a home for them to stay in. That someone is going to say, hey, come stay with me while you're in this village, in, in this, this town. And Jesus describes them as a son of peace. And as they open up their home, then the peace of God, these disciples, these 70 are to bless them with God's peace. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, each such things that are set before you. They're not to house hop, if you would. They aren't to go, well, well they've got a five-bedroom house, and we're crammed into a two-bedroom house, and we're eating beans and rice here, and they're serving filet mignon over there. Super offensive, right? Whoever opens up their house eat whatever they put before you and stay in that house until you move on to the next city. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Wouldn't that be an awesome testimony of our lives? 
that the kingdom of God has, has come near to you, when we spend time with people through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they go, man, I sense the presence of God. I sense that the kingdom of God has come near to me. As, as you came over to my house, you, you brought the kingdom of God. As you were my coworker, you, you brought the, the kingdom of God. That, that's our prayer for Colorado Springs. That's our prayer for the world, to, to see people come into the kingdom, to hear this testimony that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it'll be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Sodom and Gomorrah, judged by the Lord in the Old Testament. And here Jesus is saying these cities are going to be judged because they had revelation of the, the kingdom of God, but rejected it. The dusting of the feet is this symbolic of we're moving on to the next uh, community. We have to remember we're not responsible for the results as we labor in God's field. We're responsible that we're a testimony of Jesus in a way that honors Christ, that we're true uh, to the gospel, but how people respond is between them and the Lord. And so we need that strength from the Lord to be able to shake off rejection and move on, not in bitterness, but move on in God's calling. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Corazon and Bethsaida are located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus did a lot in the early days of, of his ministry. These are communities that had Jews, God's people, as well as some, some Gentiles. And Jesus says, look, if what was done in Corazon and Bethsaida was done in Tyre and Sidon, which is southern Lebanon, which were pagan cities that didn't have Jewish communities, that didn't have synagogues, they would have repented a long time ago. They would have come in sackcloth and ashes, but not so in Chorazin, not so in Bethsaida. Jesus did these mighty works, and yet they didn't repent. But it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Capernaum is a beautiful city right on the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus' adopted hometown. It was really his ministry headquarters, if you would. And Jesus calls out Capernaum and says, here you have this revelation of Jesus and you've rejected it. You have been raised up. You've been exalted to heaven, but you're going to be humbled and brought low to, to Hades. In verse 16, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is powerful. If you go out and you share the truth of Jesus and someone hears you, they're not hearing you, they're hearing Christ. This is a way more powerful message than us coming up with it on our own. Amen? This is the message of God. This is the testimony of God. And, and when someone hears that, they're hearing Jesus. They're responding to Christ's invitation. They're responding to Christ's authority. When they reject you and you're speaking the message of Christ in love, 
they're rejecting Jesus. And if they reject Jesus, then they're rejecting the Father. As I was studying this, this hit me that this is sobering. This is a lot bigger deal than if someone rejects you or me. If someone rejects us, okay, right? We're sinful, we're flawed, yeah. But if they reject Jesus and they reject the Father, that's sobering. If they do that over the course of their lifetime, Jesus tells us there's eternal separation. He called it hell. And that is something we can't even begin to put words or wrap our minds around. So it's a sobering thing. So as we're entering into God's harvest, as we're laboring in his field, and somebody rejects Jesus and they reject the Father, man, that's sobering. And it ultimately should should break our hearts. In verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're, they're pumped up. They're excited about all of the things that they saw God do. Could you imagine? They didn't even take a wallet. And they're coming back and they're going, we were out for this period of time. We don't know how long it was. And God provided everything that we needed. And in this community, this family opened up their home. And in this community, this, this husband and wife opened up their home. And we prayed for the sick and they were healed. We prayed for the demon-possessed and they were set free. We shared Jesus and, and people were open to it. And now they're back and, and they're rejoicing in what God had done in and through their lives. Christ's response to them is maybe not what we would expect And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why would Christ take us back to the fall of Satan? Because he knows how quickly our hearts can be filled with pride. We enter into God's harvest. We start to see God move through his grace and his mercy. But there's something in us that thinks we did something special. God uses us in spite of us, not because because of us. Agreed? We know our sin. We know our shortcomings. We're not all that special. The disciples are not all that special. God used them because he loves people, and he warns them, saying, guys, be careful. Don't rejoice in the fact that you saw all of these amazing things happen, because I saw Satan fall like lightning. His fall was quick, and the fall of pride can be quick, We should have a healthy respect for pride. Because pride, we we lose sight of God's glory. We lose sight of the fear of the Lord. And we start to exalt ourselves. And Proverbs tells us that pride comes before the fall. A haughty spirit before destruction. And that's exactly what took place with, with Satan. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, it talks about the fall of Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven... O Lucifer, son of the morning star, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Did you notice there was a lot of I in there? I will ascend. I will exalt my my throne. I will be like the, the most high. Satan wanted the glory that only 
belonged to the father and he fell. And there's this warning that is given to the 70. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus says you're taking joy in the wrong thing. And we can easily find identity and we can find joy in laboring in God's field. It's fun to labor with Jesus. It's fun to see God work. It's fun to see people come out of of darkness into light. But Jesus says that's not where your joy is to be found. Your joy is to be found that your name's written in heaven. And that's a far better thing to rejoice in. Jesus puts the focus on what is eternal instead of what is temporal. I've been thinking and meditating this week on 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It says, but our light affliction, that caused me to stop right there. Do I consider my affliction to be light? Not, not very often. Can oftentimes feel heavy, but Paul says, but our light affliction is for a moment. Isn't that encouraging? Any trial in this life is momentary. Try to think about the moment of time we have here on earth compared to eternity. It's such a short amount of time. But our light affliction for the moment is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. God actually takes our trials and uses those trials for eternal substance. It's not wasted. Jesus wants the disciples, when it comes to joy, to be upon what is eternal and not what is temporal. And it's very easy to look for temporal joy and the ups and downs of life. We've been paying a little bit more attention to the Oregon Ducks this year. I'm from Oregon, the Oregon Ducks football team, and they're having a a good season. And why did I check the score before coming to the Saturday night service? And the Ducks were up 34 to 17 in the fourth quarter. And we felt like it was safe to wear our duck stuff to church last night. (laughs) And by the time that we got here, they're playing the Beavers, which is Oregon State, their rivals. The Beavers had beaten the Ducks 38 to 14. The Beavers scored 21 points in the fourth quarter. We're like, what in the world happened? We're going to have to go home and watch the highlights. That represents this temporal life, doesn't it? It just goes up and down. If, you're, if your joy is found in the things of this world, it'll go up and down. If your joy is found in being a Broncos fan, you've had a really depressing fall, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, hopes were high and they just came, came crushing down. But if we put our joy in the fact that our name is written in heaven, that's a permanent reservation. That's something that is lasting, ministry, serving the Lord, can't be the source of our joy because there will be times where it'll be awesome. It'll be times where you'll see God working, but then there's going to be other times where there's actually opposition and there's difficulty because you're serving the Lord. There'll be seasons where you're serving the Lord and you're just not seeing anything take place, not seeing any fruit. You're like, man, here I am serving my kids. Here I am trying to be faithful to to my spouse here. I've been serving with the third graders in children's ministry and just not, not seeing any fruit. 
And God wants us to put our focus on what is eternal. And as we put our focus on what is eternal, we're also putting our focus on what is lasting. What's, what's lasting? Well, that my name's written in heaven. All of these other things that I may put joy in, they're, they're not lasting. We know the economy changes, doesn't it? The stock market changes. We know things change politically. Everything in this life changes and has the potential to change. But thankfully, this reservation in heaven, it's absolutely permanent. But what I love most about what Christ has said is it puts the focus on God's grace. How did you get your name written in heaven? Well, because you're loved by God. Did you do that or did God do that? God did that. It's not that we love God. It's that he first loved us. We trusted his grace. He loved us while we were sinners. He went to the cross and he died for us. There's not going to be anybody in heaven going, I worked really hard to get here. I deserve to be here. It's God's grace. It's his forgiveness. It's what he's done in our lives. So if I'm going around taking joy that my name's written in heaven, in essence, I'm taking joy in the grace of God. I'm taking joy in the goodness of God. It's like what Jason sang that last song in worship where we're resting in the arms of our Father. We're founding joy in our relationship with Him. How's the joy factor in your life? Would you say joy's kind of at an all-time low? In our lives, it's, it's easy to be there. May we take these words of Christ to heart and say, I'm going to take joy in the fact that my name is written in heaven, that God has given to me everlasting life. In verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced. So here Jesus is talking about joy, and he begins to rejoice in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. You have the wise and the prudent speaking of those that are trusting on their own understanding, their own intellect, and the Father hides revelation from them. But then you have babes, those that are humble. A, a baby is humble, right? A baby's like, feed me. I'll take the food that you, you give to me, right? And the disciples, these 70, the, the 12, they're, they're humble, they're not esteemed from the world's standards. The disciples in the book of Acts, it was said of them that they were unlearned and untrained. That's not very nice. You guys are uneducated and you don't have training. They didn't go to seminary. They weren't part of the theological schools. But what did they say? But you've been with Jesus. They had the revelation of the Father. Let's think about this in context. As we're being called out into God's field to share Jesus with unbelievers, we need to have confidence that the Father is revealing himself. The Father's revealing Jesus, just the way that he did it in our lives and others. And he's opening up the hearts of the humble. He's opening up the hearts of, of babes. Knowing Christ is not just an issue of academics, is it? It's not just a, an issue of intellect. Now, is there a factual reality to our faith? Absolutely. There's evidence that demands a verdict of, of our faith. But it's not just 
an academic issue. It's an issue of the heart and the Father revealing his, his love to us. In verse 22, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. So the Father's put everything in Jesus' hands. And no one knows who the Father is. No, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Again, in this context of going out and sharing, the Son is introducing us to the Father, and the Father is introducing us to the Son. This is an amazing mystery of the relationship between the Father and the Son. All eternity past, all eternity future, the Father and the Son enjoying relationship together, the Father putting everything into the hands of the Son, and Jesus coming to reveal the Father to us, to bring us into relationship with the Father. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene's the first person that he reveals himself to, and he says, don't cling to me. Go share this with the disciples. I've got to go to my father and your father. The mission of Christ is accomplished. He brought, through the gospel, us into relationship with the father. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. I love being a dad. It's one of my huge joys. Being a husband and a dad are four kids, three daughters, one son. And I think that I know my kids pretty well right? And I think that they know me really well. They could tell you some stories about Pastor Eric that would blow your mind. Like, you know, I'm, I'm fallen and sinful just like the rest. My dad is one of my heroes. He's 70 years old. He battles Parkinson's degree, disease and is an awesome dad. He's kind. He's, he's gentle. He's strong. He loves the Lord. I would love to introduce you to my dad. If there's one person that you could meet on this planet, I would love for you to have the opportunity to, to meet my dad. And I think that I know him. I know him in a, in a unique way. How much more so does the heavenly father know the son and the son know the father and the son is introducing us to the father? In verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Jesus gets the disciples together and says, guys, you're so blessed. The prophets long to see this day of the coming of the Messiah, and you're seeing it, you're experiencing it. And you know what? We're blessed too. Because we live in the new covenant of God's grace. Those that lived prior to Jesus' coming, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, never knew the internal relationship of the Holy Spirit. But we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. They had an external relationship with God. They had a relationship with God that was built on works. We have a relationship with God that's built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're extremely, extremely blessed. I think as we understand how blessed we are and we understand the compassion of Christ, it moves us to want to labor in, in Christ's field. Uh, let's take a moment to just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. You know, what, what's your life all about? What's, what's my life all about? And it can be very easy in the challenges of life 
trying to pay bills and raise kids and keep up with all of the demands to lose sight of Christ's mission, to lose sight of those that don't know Christ as, as their Savior. But let's try to imagine at the end of our lives, looking back on our lives and going, what was it all for? What, what was the purpose? Was it just paying bills? Was it just trying to save up enough money to be able to retire? Was it just about having cool experiences and going on vacations? Was it just about as comfortable as I could possibly be? Or was there something bigger? Was there something greater? Church, we're, we're living in very interesting times. God appointed for you to be born and to be on this planet right now. You're here December, November 2022. And what is God up to in the midst of these times that we're living in? We know that he's returning and we know that he's wanting to draw people unto himself. God uniquely engineered you in your mother's womb. There's never been anybody like you. There'll never be another person like you in, in the future. You've got unique talents, unique gifts. And part of being saved is God has prepared good works for us to labor in. I'm reading a book right now. It's called A Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. And Eric Metaxas wrote a book about Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany in the 30s and 40s. And he makes in a comparison between the American church currently and the, the church of Germany in the 1930s. In his words, he describes it as a silo of silence. That somehow the church in Germany and the American church currently, we've adopted this idea that the greatest virtue is to be silent. Now, is that what God says or what culture says? Does God want us to be silent about who Jesus is? Does he want us to be silent about the gospel? That's what culture says. But we as a church, the big C church in America, somehow have been convinced by the enemy that we're supposed to be silent. And what's so convicting about what Eric Metaxas writes is when I'm silent as a believer about the truth of Jesus Christ, that sends you a message and affirms that you should be silent too. And then when you're silent, that confirms to another believer, you should be silent. And what God is calling us to is to speak the truth in love. Yes, in love, absolutely in love, having the compassion of Jesus Christ, but the truth has to be spoken. This is not the time for believers to shy away from God's message on sexuality, in humility, pointing people to the gospel. But the world needs to know the truth that God's not confused on sexuality. This is not the time for the church to be silent on issues of life. God is for life. We're created in his image. So we're advocates of life all the way through from conception all the way to the elderly years, everything in between. As believers, we want to speak words of life because God is for life, but most importantly, to speak the gospel, to share the gospel. 
Say, I understand that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but Jesus died for me. He rose again. Jesus died for you. He rose again. And as we repent of sin and turn from sin, Christ will be able to forgive us from our sin. I think oftentimes we're all looking over our shoulder. Well, God wants to use someone else. No, God wants to use you. He wants to use me. Would you be willing first to pray that God would raise up laborers? And then would you consider laboring in his field? To wake up each day and say, okay, Lord, what do you have for me? You've placed me at this workplace. How can I be a witness? My son's on this flag football team. May your kingdom come near to this flag football team. I'm in this neighborhood. How do I share the love of Jesus Christ in this neighborhood? Lord, you're, you're touching my heart to support missions. Okay, I'm gonna give financially to that. But Lord, I don't want my life to simply be about myself. I want my life to, to be about your mission. I know these are hard times that we're living in, but I think they're great times that we're living in. And it's a great time for the gospel. And I'm praying that there would be a movement of the gospel right here in Colorado Springs, not just in Colorado Springs, throughout the world, but that many, many people would come to know Christ their Savior because the harvest is truly plentiful. So would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you would give us the filling of the Holy Spirit to not be silent, to not adopt this idea that it's virtuous to, to be silent. May we not be in arrogance. May there be a sincere love, a sincere humility, but may we speak the truth in love. Would you give each of us opportunities this week to love on unbelievers, to, to share the gospel? God, would you open up doors for us as a church and in this community? Lord, for other churches in this community? Lord, may we respond to the tragedy that's taken place so close to our church with, with grace and love and truth and, and the gospel. Pray many would come to know Christ as their Savior. Lord, we need your help in this. Lord, just protect us from our selfishness, protect us from our pride. We rejoice that our name is written in heaven. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.